0: Ayers on the Road, value-based parenting and life balance ideas from world-traveling family coaches. Here's Richard and Linda Ayers.
1: Hello there, it's Ayers on the Road. Another week has gone by and here we are talking about what's happened and what roads we've been on and what parenting involvement we've had, both with our own children and with other parents around the world
0: well i'm sure that those of you who are listening have experienced what we have many times as well as as us and that is moving moving we have a family that just moved back to utah man trying to get the bank to make the final uh closing i mean it's absolutely crazy the paperwork and all this stuff and all one more page and one more thing and one more thing and
1: and They've had a moving our,
0: van sitting in front of their house for five days and is just crazy. This but, is
1: our daughter who's lived for 20 years in Boston. She went off to school there when she was 18 years old and then later went on a mission for the church. But other than the mission, she's lived in Boston pretty much well, since she went back there to school. Yeah, she
0: lived in D.C. and worked there for a while. But really, Boston is their home. And it is really heart-wrenching to change. And we're saying, come on, we're here. Come Wait on, we're here. This come is on. our
1: strategy. We've got to reel all these kids in from all the hinterlands. It's not going to work for us. Here but we design.
0: compliment all of you who can do that. But anyway, she's saying, it's not about you. It's just that we had such a good deal in Boston. They didn't really have a great deal. They had a darling little house with one bathroom, four kids, <laughs> and yes, every weekend. So, um, the kids are,
1: the kids are pretty happy. One of them said the the six year old the other day said, grandfather, do you know how many toilets we have now? We have four. (laughs) (laughs) He said, that's four times as many as we had in Boston, but that's neither here nor there. Anyway, that's where we've been after the Thanksgiving holidays. We've been trying to stick around close here and help her get moved in. And so it's been a a good time. What we want to talk about today is a little depressing. Do you think we can make it hopeful, Linda, at the same time?
0: I hope so. We've been on the road uh, between Park City and Sundance in Utah, for those of you who know Utah a little bit. Because there has been a conference there, um, that is really fascinating.
1: It's a conference on the connection between religion and the strength of families, the correlation between people's faith and how well their families are doing. And it's been just fascinating for us. Some of the people on the panel we've known from years gone by, um, the orchestrator of it is one of our favorites, a guy named Brad Wilcox. It's interesting, there are two Brad Wilcoxes, pretty prominent. One is uh, an LDS church member who's a writer and so on, and we like his material. But this other one is a, a wonderful Catholic guy who runs an institute called the Institute of Family Studies, out of the University of Virginia. And we always read his material because he's a data guy. He gathers data. He does a lot of statistical work showing the connection between families and other institutions and between how well uh, families are doing and how well other things that they're involved in go. In other words, what is the cause and effect relationship between families and, and commitment within families and other institutions. And of course, a lot of his work deals with the decline of families. And so he and a bunch of other scholars, about 16 different scholars from all over the world, really, we were very interested in the two who were there from Taiwan.
0: Yeah, was a woman from Colombia. um, Peru, um, it was really fascinating because they had statistics from their countries and the same thing is happening happening in the US.
1: Well, yeah, well, it's the same thing for sometimes different reasons. I mean, there is a decline in marriage and infertility all through the industrialized world. Actually, I I had the numbers and I didn't take the notes, but there are some, of the 360 some odd countries in the world, that's count, that's every nation state on the planet. Um, Just over 200 of them have a negative birth rate. In other words, their birth rate, their fertility rate is not high enough to replenish the population. Replenishment rate is about 2.1 children per woman. And uh, some of the Asian countries, as you may know, have have about a fourth of that, Singapore, (coughs) Has a birth rate of zero point six and and many of the asian countries and <clears throat> but isn 't it interesting, Linda, that a majority of countries are not now replacing we all remember the time when when everyone 's concern was population growth and and how's the how 's the planet going to handle all these people and that is still a worry of course in Africa and in some third world places but in the industrialized world, in Europe, in the U.S., in most of Asia, the problem is we're not replacing the population. How's the workforce going to be replenished? Who Who is going to be earning wages, paying taxes, and taking care of services for the growing aging population? I mean, it doesn't take a, a statistician to realize that we're headed for serious problems in countries where the old people are the population, the percentage that are old is growing and people are living longer and longer and the birth rate is declining. So there's no workforce coming up. There's no, um, you know, people in the workforce to support the government and to support the aging population. Uh, A lot of people call that a demographic winter that we're heading for a time when, uh, it's a, other people call it an inverted pyramid. Picture that in your mind, the growing population on the top and the smaller part of the pyramid earning the wages and trying to take care of the aging population. And, and the bottom of the pyramid is getting smaller and the top of the pyramid is getting larger. It's a, it's a dramatic problem.
0: Well, we live in a very interesting world. It's fast-moving a lot because of the Internet and because of the different mindset than when our parents were born and even our grandparents, is drastically different. When we were in Singapore two years ago, their population replacement
1: their ratio zero point six.
0: They are actually um, paying women to have children. I mean,
1: they get, I, a, get a bonus if you have a child. We heard
0: twenty thousand. Then someone was recently there said no, it's really eight thousand. But I mean, they're paying them to have children. And then in in Japan, 62% of women in recent polls uh, show that they just don't plan to have children at all because they're expected to stay home with the children as a, a cultural thing. And it really, they don't want to do that. They've spent a lot of money on their education and they have their freedom and independence. And they're just like, Mm-mm, no, I'm not going to do that.
1: So we, one of the things, and this we we've been preaching and talking about this long before this conference that we've just been to, but uh, it was re-emphasized there that what really is what really gets your attention and what's really shocking is not just that marriage rates are down and divorce rates are up and and fertility rates are down and so on. It's not just the trends it's that we've reached some sort of tipping points. We've reached a point in many cases where majorities have become minorities and minorities have become majorities. I mean, the one I just mentioned is one that more countries now have a negative birth rate below replacement level than than there are countries that have a higher than replacement birth rate. And then you get down into other statistics where, in, in many countries now, among the adult population, those over 18, uh, more than half are single. And in Sweden, for example, 60% of the legal residences listed in in Sweden are occupied by one single individual. So the trend is not only moving through more divorce and less marriage, but but even to chosen singleness for life. People who have just made a conscious decision. They don't ever want the responsibility of marriage or of a family. And, you know, to some 20- and 30-year-olds, that looks pretty attractive. We're going to have more freedom, more options, more more disposable income to spend on ourselves. But it starts not looking so good in people in their 40s and in their 50s and then in their 60s and 70s. It, it looks like total loneliness.
0: I remember their 80s, a lot of... A lot of people, as they get older, realize that they don't have people to take care of them. And, of course, this is not always uh, that person's choice. A lot of people would like to be married and aren't. So, you know, we're not judging here, but we're just saying the statistics are getting really scary. Um, We had one of the panel members was particularly concerned with getting fathers more involved
1: And um, although the general trend around the world is that 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 may be one of the bright spots, don't you think, Linda, that dads, generally speaking, are more involved with raising kids than they were a generation ago.
0: Yeah. Um, But it's so interesting. They each had their little niche of what they were working on. And actually, they weren't working to change things. They were just working to quantify things They were working on uh, statistics and things that the way they really are. Um, so, but they were a fascinating group. I mean, thank goodness for them because they are making us more aware of what's going on in the world.
1: Well, and some of you know that we're um, that we uh, have a book called The Turning. That's the reason we were we were there is because of our book called The Turning, which is in two parts. The first part is how we're turning away from families throughout the world, and the second part is how we can maybe make some positive steps to turn people back toward families and commitment and marriage and so on. But, um, you know, and, and that book is now being worked on as a film, a documentary film. And, and, and the interesting thing is that people who really get into this and who really study these numbers and the numbers are not publicized enough. That's the problem. We, I sat by a, a British guy whose whole job, he's a part of a foundation in England called, in the United Kingdom, called the Marriage Foundation. And he doesn't do the studies or he uses the studies of these professors and the others that were at this conference and tries to publicize them, tries to get the word out that we are, you know, we are in trouble. We are, there's demographic problems. We need to somehow save the family or it's going to affect all of us. And what I, what I think is so fascinating is that he was saying the other night, you know, look how much we talk about global warming and what a terrible problem it is and how it may affect us all over the next 50 years. He said, I agree. It is a problem, but the, the degeneration and disappearance of families and of family ties, And the fact that families are not going to be there to do the basic functions they've always done, of procreation, of nurturing, of teaching values and so on, of of giving children an identity and so on. Who's going to do those functions when when there are no families? And so it's it's a frightening thing. I mean, his point basically was, uh, this is the biggest problem facing the world right now, bigger than global warming, bigger than terrorism bigger than any problem you can name.
0: So with that downer uh, we will, we'll take a little break and we'll make it a little more uh, upbeat the second half, so stay tuned we're going to have a little conversation In fact,
1: it. we'll get into the connections between religion and the strength of families which was one of the interesting parts of this conference
0: and we'll be right back
1: And we're back on Ayers on the Road. We're talking this week about uh, a kind of a, a dark subject matter, a title for the show that uh, parents and marriage and families are statistically, at least, in a lot of trouble right now in our world. And what can we do about it? This conference we've been attending, one of the one of the purposes of it was to try to, to measure what the solutions might be in other words where in our society as the general trend is away from marriage and away from family and away from commitment and away from parenting where are the bright spots and where can we learn in terms of what the numbers are about what would save families
0: well i think uh, i like to start by just saying uh the person i was sitting by was uh, quite a young father his oldest child was eight and had four down to a baby and um, he was so dedicated to his religion he was an Episcopalian but he was teaching at Baylor which is a Baptist University and it was a fascinating conversation about uh, how much they he feels is important to talk about religion and in the lives of the students that he's teaching and in and the life their lives and then the fellow the man who was running the program, uh, Brad Wilcox was an amazing person. He had nine children.
1: Five of which are adopted.
0: Five. Two from Ethiopia, two from Guatemala, and where was the other one?
1: Um, No, two from Ethiopia, three from Guatemala. Three from Guatemala. And then, and you've heard this story before, after thinking they couldn't have natural-born children and adopting five, they then began to have children of their own and had four.
0: (laughs) Had four. But he was saying, those of you who have dealt with Adoption know this story. It's more difficult to raise a child who's adopted. In large majority of cases, yeah. and <clears throat> uh, he said, "Boy, you know those first five were really." A challenge and then we had those four and man, they were just so easy. <laughs> yeah. was, well bless their heart. I mean that is really pretty amazing.
1: Well and so here's some of the and and but he's a wonderful Catholic guy and he well, goes to, to go to, to mass. Yeah, he hey,
0: when we left uh an evening dinner he was frantically looking on the computer to find out where the closest Catholic church was that was doing mass. the next Early week.
1: mass. So we could go before the meeting started again.
0: So it really, it was really amazing. We, what a great guy, you know, that these dedicated Catholics are amazing.
1: So it segues right into some of the really hopeful, I think, and optimistic findings of some of these researchers. Let me just mention three of them. Um, among those who are religious, and that means that attend church and who say on public opinion surveys that they are religious, that they do embrace the church. Uh, here's some of the things they're doing better at. They have a higher life satisfaction than those who do not say that they're religious and do not attend church. They have lower domestic abuse and they have higher sexual satisfaction and the list goes on. There's, and you know, and that's counterintuitive to a lot of people. There there are those who say, No, religion is what oppresses us, religion is is what causes patriarchal families and the domination of women and on and on and on. But the, the numbers don't bear that out. The numbers suggest that those who embrace a religion, who have religious faith, and who are somewhat active in that religious faith actually have better results in terms of the satisfaction they feel in their life and in their marriages and in their general everyday life.
0: You know, we can get back to this uh, conference in just a minute, but I have to say that this week also we've met with a man. Some of you may know uh, Daniel Peterson, who has been immersed in the Muslim world for much of his life. And, um, It had brought back so many memories of when we were immersed in the Muslim world, and we still go in and out occasionally, but wow, did we have an amazing eye-opening experience. If you want to know where the population is growing the most, it's probably the Muslim world. And I have to say, the statistics that he presented were amazing. There are 1.6 billion, that's with a B, Muslims in the world, and there are about... What did he say? Between twenty and fifty thousand ISIS members. Yeah, he
1: was just pointing out that the, uh, the the extremist Muslim groups are tiny in terms of their.
0: But they have given the whole rest of the Muslim world a horrible black eye, and we we do not realize how amazing these Muslim families are. We are really. Um, Fans of the Muslim world they are great family people they know what they're doing they're dedicated to their religion and uh, they're doing some great things
1: well they're part of the positive statistics if you take it as a a large group let me mention a a few of the other interesting things going on among this this group there are some people that are working on what they call the success sequence based on on the numbers and statistics that uh, those who do the best in life, financially and professionally and educationally, are those who follow a sequence where they they get engaged and get married and then have a child. Those who are doing the worst on economic measurements of all kinds are the ones who get that out of order, who either have a child before they're married or who cohabitate before they're married. The numbers essentially say that those practices and changing that sequence doesn't help. There's another group there that's working on, I found the title interesting. Um, so are, are you, are people sliding or deciding are they sliding into marriage or are they deciding to get married? And their work is very interesting because, and, and by the way, a couple of other statistics in this country, they were saying that about somewhere upwards of 70% of couples who move in together, move in cohabitating, not married. And, and about 30% or a little less of those who start to live together actually get married before they start to live together. And that sounds pretty pessimistic. But you compare it to England. Again, I'm sitting by this guy from Great Britain who said, well, the, the number in, in Britain now is upwards of 90% of those who move in together for the first time are not married. And and this whole and and what happens then is people t- tend to slide into a commitment which is very shaky. They may move, let's say for example they're cohabitating, and then they get pregnant and have a baby, and so then they start thinking, well maybe we should actually get married, or they buy a house, or they make some other commitments that sort of slide them toward. The idea of staying together and so at some point it just seems like okay, we should probably go ahead and get married. So they're sliding into it as opposed to people who make a decision and a commitment to be married before they begin to live together and before they have children. And as you can guess the numbers in terms of how well they do educationally, how well they do financially, how how greater chance they have for a divorce. All the numbers are positive and ahead of the game for those who decide rather than slide into marriage. So I found that very interesting. Um, There's another study going on called before I do where they're trying to gauge what are the things that predict a lasting marriage? What are the things people can do before they're married in order to be a predictor of how, how well their marriage will last. So you can see the kind of work that people were doing there, Linda, a lot of, a lot of really thoughtful people, secular people, academic people, although many of them certainly are religious, but, but they're doing these studies as academics and the results are are pretty uniformly saying, that the things that religion has taught people over the centuries of, you know, chastity and of, and of commitment in marriage and of waiting until you're married before you have a child and so on, that all those things that have been championed by, by all kinds all basically all religious faiths that they actually work. They, the statistics show that those things are the predictors of stable families and happy homes, whereas they're opposites. And again, these are numbers, and there's exceptions to this in, in every case, but the, the, the general statistics show a positive direction for those who follow this sequence and a negative direction for those who don't.
0: Well, the guy you were sitting by had some really interesting um, thoughts with his own children. I don't – did he have four children? He six, six, actually. Chi- oh, yeah, six yeah. children. And uh, he – some of them were cohabiting, but he he really felt that there were certain things that he had drilled into his children's minds, especially his girls. I think he had four girls first and then two boys. But um, why don't you share that with them? I You took notes on it. It was pretty interesting.
1: Well, one of the problems was he's a really good guy, and I really liked him, but he's, he's capitulating. He's kind of giving up in some ways. He's saying, hey, you're not going to stop kids from – <clears throat> Excuse me, from cohabitating before marriage. That's just a fact of life in England. That's ninety-five percent. That's what people do. So, so we're, we we've given up on trying to stop that from happening with our own kids. All we can do is say, well, you ought to follow the same pattern as you would if you were married. In other words, when you're looking for someone to live with, you ought to ask yourself three questions: Will this person fight for me? I mean, does he really care about me? Two. Is he a person who is kind, who is marriageable? Is he the kind of person I would marry if I did get married? And three, um, can he make decisions? You know, is he, is he just a guy that floats along or can he actually make decisions? But what I found interesting is that, you know, here's a guy who's, who's a strong family advocate but he's saying, I can't fight city hall. I can't fight the trend of ninety ninety five 95% of people cohabitating. I just have to assume my kids will do the same thing. So the best I can do is to try to get them to behave <clears throat> and think as though they actually were married. And I'm sitting there thinking, man, don't give up so easily. You know, why, why not? Why not push for, for the things you think are right for marriage and for the sequence of, there's a right order to do things. You know, it's like the old nursery rhyme, right? Linda, how did that go? Um first, first comes, comes love,
0: love, then comes marriage, then comes a baby in the baby carriage. Yeah,
1: that's all. All we got to do is remember the old nursery rhymes and follow them.
0: And actually it's usually the opposite way.
1: <laughs> yeah. You know.
0: Um, They have a baby and then they decide finally to get married and they just decide they adore each other. I mean, you know, or or not. But it really is interesting how things have turned upside down in the world of families. But before we close, I have to say, you have a lot more to say. You were there longer than I was. Let me just say one more
1: thing. And this is only (laughs) tangentially related. I was just looking before we started the show today at the BYUradio.org, the website. And I think you listeners would do well to spend a little time on that website. Number one, you can see all the shows that come on BYU Radio. But when you click on our show on Irs on the Road, there are some links that come up. I mean, obviously, you'll get the names of the shows. And, and many of you, I know, are just subscribing to Irs on the Road through a podcast, which is great. But you'll also get some links there where you can get a lot of our books for free and a lot of the things we're doing with some of these seminars and other things will show up on those links. So spend a little time next time you're on the computer and you've got a minute, go to BYU Radio and to Irs on the Road and connect to us in some ways other than by listening and we'll appreciate that and I hope you will too.
0: So let me just close by saying another thing we've done this week with our grandchildren is taking them to a delightful movie called Coco. And we had no idea what to expect we uh, it's it's so fantastic about the bottom line being that families are the most important thing in your life and you can't guess that as you go through but it's uh, produced. I, I don't know if Mexicans produced it. Well, or it's about the it's, Mexican it's culture. A, it's it's certainly about the Mexican culture, and we've spent a lot of time in south of the border and wondering what in the world was up with these
1: skeletons. What's the Day of the Dead? And
0: what in the world's the Day of Dead? <laughs> and and so on and so on. Of course, they spend their we uh, just thought it was their Halloween, Halloween, yeah. <laughs> uh, in the cemeteries, celebrating with their ancestors. It is really worth seeing. We suggest you go take a look at it with your kids. It's absolutely. Dark. We
1: think it's about genealogy and families about and so priorities. many good things anyway that's we our wish movie you, recommendation for the week and
0: we wish <laughs> you the very best this week as we go back on the road we'll see you again next time on iris on the road bye bye so